I know we normally have a process here that, you know, I'll read the Bible passage and then, we'll, then I'll preach from it, but uh, I asked, nay, begged the uh, other elders to allow me to actually speak a little bit before I read the passage. And if you've been reading ahead where I'm going to be today, you might understand why I'm doing this. Fact is, Hosea chapter 2 is not normally a traditionally uplifting piece of scripture. It's not a place that people go, you know, I'm feeling kind of tired and down, and so I need to go and look into the Word of God and be encouraged. So I'm going to read Hosea 2. Very few people will ever say that. Now, to be clear, I think there is amazingly good news here. I, as I look into it, I, I am amazed at how deeply God loves his people and how it's shown through even the times when he rebukes his people. But we're going to have to get there. And I mean, I have to say too, because... As an elder, sometimes people come and talk to me about what kinds of things we should preach from, what kinds of things we should actually come from in the pulpit. And as you guys know, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, that's, one of the, that's one of our marks here. We try to go through, exegetically through books of the Bible so people can understand that. Now, the question's going to be then, why in the name of all things holy, Steve, would you choose to go through the minor prophets? Because they're all rebuke. That's what they are. And honestly, I have to say, it's because I, I probably have more, in, more bravery than brains. So I, I, again, so pray with, for me as I go through this. But I think it's important to remember a couple of things first about Scripture. First of all, all Scripture is for your hope. All Scripture is for your hope. I don't say that because, you know, I'm a handsome guy and you guys should believe me. It's because it says that in Romans 15, chapter, four, or chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have Notice it doesn't say much of, the script, much of what was written in former days or some of the stuff written in former days. It says whatever was written in the former days in scriptures. Second of all, we have to recognize that all of the scriptures tell us about our great hope, namely Jesus Christ. This is from John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. And this is Jesus actually rebuking people for looking in the Bible and not seeing him. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. As I preach this morning from Hosea chapter 2, we are going to learn about Christ our great hope. But I also have to warn you, Hosea chapter 2, as with many of the minor prophets and most of the major prophets actually, is going to have some very solid, 
very clear rebuke for his people. There's a reason for that. Prophets do something for God's people. Their job, a very thankless job, a job that tended to end in their deaths more often than not, is to let the people of God hear clearly from God when the people of God just aren't listening. They don't want to hear from God at this point. They think things are fine. They think that, you know, listening to God is not necessary. And yet, a loving God is required by his love to let his people know the truth. Uh, People love to read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. Uh, There's just one little verse there that I think is in our age where we like to believe that things need to be spun in positive senses. We have to worry about 1 Corinthians 13.6, which says, and referring to love, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And so as we look at Hosea chapter 2, What we're seeing is God speaking his truth, the truth, to his people. And in ways that even if they don't want to hear it, they will. Which is, again, as I said, fairly dangerous for uh, a prophet. Now, as we look into chapter 2 of Hosea, I also have to give a warning to you. Because it's very easy for us as we hear this and as we hear the sermon that's coming to, I'd say, flatter ourselves. Uh, We are generally a people that are given to self-flattery. I like to believe that, you know, when I read something negative in the scriptures, I would never do that. Uh, If if it was happening in my time, if I had the ability to be in the time of the Israelites, no, I would do the right thing. I'd be on the right side of, of history. In fact, that's pretty common. Jesus ran into that. There are people who actually believed that they were on the right side of history as they persecuted Jesus. This is from Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 52. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, i.e., I'm angry. And Jesus said, not one to be necessarily kind and gentle at every time, Jesus responds with the truth because the lawyer needs to hear the truth. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load the people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses that you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, all the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. You see, these people had decided that they were good and noble and upstanding citizens, and they built these great monuments to the prophets that, if they were at that time, would have killed. And we... We, when we read the word of God, at least uh, I, I can't comment on you guys. You guys are probably more righteous than me. 
But I find myself, when I look at the Word of God sometimes, I find myself making excuses, you know, like, oh, I, w- I really hope that guy that, I ran- that, I- that cut me off in traffic reads this passage today, because then he'd know how much he... He caused problems for me. Oh, I really hope that my brother whom I'm having a fight with reads this passage because then he'd know that he's completely in the wrong and I'm completely in the right. It's easy to read the prophets and imagine that we are righteous, that the prophets aren't being written to us. So I, I, I do have a bit of a proviso for you, a warning as we go into Hosea chapter two. When we hear the rebuke here, Please don't try to spin it in positive senses in your own life. Try to be honest with yourself because God is trying to be honest with us. That's why the prophets were written. That's why we can read them now. And you see, this is important because again, all of these passages are written for our hope. Again, All of the scriptures testify about Jesus Christ. Friends, if you would know Jesus Christ, read the scriptures. I'm sorry, I I have a a bit of a a nervous take on this point because I've, I've been reading passages this week where pastors have been standing in pulpits all over the place and saying, you know, you need to separate the word of God from the Jesus of the word. Do you you get the difference there? You know that somehow Jesus is different from the word of God? Yet the word of God teaches us about Jesus. If you don't have the word of God, you're not going to hear about Jesus. And friends, there is nothing greater than knowing Jesus. So don't close yourself off from seeing Jesus today, even if it is going to be in a hard text. Uh, I don't want to be the kind of person who just gives you the surface level kinds of feel goodiness that when you go out into the real world and you face the real problems that face the world, face us in the world, I don't want you to suddenly collapse because you, you just have a surface level joy. I want us to all have the joy that bubbles up from the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The kind, of, the kind of joy that's based in the rock-solid love God has for us and shows us in Jesus Christ, even when he's rebuking us. So remember, I was uh, in a Hosea. I've already preached on Hosea chapter 1, and uh, uh, some people snicker at me because I had to say the word whoredom at least three times when I read chapter 1 of Hosea. And I told you that it was difficult. And I told you what it was about. You see, Hosea is a good and godly man. He is a man called of God. There is nothing in the text to imagine that Hosea is an unholy person that deserves to be treated poorly. And yet God calls him to be married, and even better, calls him to be married to someone he promises will be unfaithful to him. The reason is simple. Because God wants to express to his people Israel the situation that he's in with relation to the people. He is married to the people of God. He desires their good. He loves them. He lavishes good gifts on them. And yet, 
they turn away, every last one of them. So Hosea is called to marry Gomer, and Gomer is faithful for a little while. And then as we saw in the text in chapter 1, he has, she has one child that she bears to Hosea, and then she has another child who she bears to somebody else who we don't know, and another child who she bears to someone else who we don't know. And naturally, you can imagine that Hosea is a little angry. He's a little hurt angry. I don't know if there's a word for that. You know, the kind of anger that comes from both being hurt and angry. You know, the, you, you have a deep wound that come, gets into you, and you're angry, but you're also sad. You, you don't know whether to, to laugh, to cry, to, to beat something to a bloody pulp, or to just break down in a complete heap. That's where Hosea is. And that's where we see him at the beginning of chapter 2, where he gives his quick down and dirty rebuke. And I'm going to be reading down to verse 15, which is the end of the, uh, the oracle he gives us. So that's Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Uh, I, I think some of you were paying too much attention to me there at the beginning, so you might not have actually opened your Bibles to that. So I'll give you a minute. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to start to read at verse 1. Hosea chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and the adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon the children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For the mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water. By the way, that's really confusing that they say that, but they do. My wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts and her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest. 
and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and they will punish, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor's door of, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So I have three points that I'd like to actually open your eyes to here. It's three points and there's going to be four applications. First of all, though this is not a positive passage, I want you to be clear about one thing. God loves his people. I know it's probably not quite as clear because we in the 21st century West tend to believe that love means that we affirm absolutely everything about other people whom we love. That's not true. You never affirm in someone you love things that will destroy them. Because if you do, that means you don't love them. That means you love yourself. You love your ability to avoid problems. If you love someone else, you will their good. I don't normally quote Thomas Aquinas, but he's right on that point. If you desire, if you desire someone else's good, that is what it means to love them. And God desires the good of his people. Be careful here. I didn't say God desires the happiness in each and individual position of his people. He desires the good of his people. He loves his people. Don't believe me? Notice how he actually talks to his people, even in the midst of rebuke. Verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead. Just wait there for a second. Please plead with your mother. Please call her to repentance. Please bring her back to me. Please plead with her. She's not listening to me. You, her child, plead with her. Please. Get, get the feeling there. God desires his people not to just turn away from him. He desires for them to turn back. He's not desiring for them to be destroyed. He's desiring for them to be in relationship with him again. Plead with them. Notice in verse 3, the, the word there it begins with. Lest. Now, I, I know it's not, not kosher to talk about single words like this, but... Think about what the word lest means. It means that there is a, something that's going on right now, and if you don't change your ways, this other thing will happen. It's a conditional. And you only give a conditional to someone if you don't want them to do it. 
I don't want you to run away from me. I don't want to have to correct you this way. I don't want to have to show the problems that are going to happen here. Please, don't go here. That's what God is saying to his people. Because God loves his people. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her. That sounds pretty confining, doesn't it? But notice verse 7. Why does he do it? She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she will say, I shall go to my husband, my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. God shuts this up, shut, is shutting up these other things so that person he loves, his bride, the people of God, cannot go further into the sin that's destroying them. Friends, it's sometimes love to stop you from doing things that are going to kill you. If you stop your three-year-old from running into traffic, though they cry like you have done horrible things to them, You don't hate them because you stop them. You love them. In fact, it's going to sometimes get worse if people sometimes have to have family members who deal with really, really serious problems. But you know what? If you enable your child who is is, uh, on drugs and keeps doing them, if you enable them to to do more of that, you don't love them. You hate them. God desires the people to not be in trouble. Now, I have to be careful here because this is an image. And I just have to go back just a little bit because there is a disclaimer I have to give you. Um, You're not God and neither is your spouse. So what I'm saying here is not you know, telling you that this is how you have to treat your wife. God is different than you in one really, really, really simple way. He's righteous, you're not. I hate to be pretty blunt about that. But let's face it, the things that he's saying here, when he says that he's going to close up the people of Israel, it's because he's good and he knows what's going to happen. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's God. And so since he knows what's going to happen, when he stops the people of Israel from going into deeper sin, he's doing it because he loves them. And he knows that he loves them. This, is not, this does not mean that you as, your hus- you as a husband or you as a wife should stop your spouse from doing what they want because chances are good, you're unrighteous and so you'll pro- you're probably good, your good desires are probably mixing with bad desires So be a little bit more careful about that. Use some humility. End of disclaimer. I meant to do that earlier. But God does love his people. There's a simple application for that for us. If you are in Christ, God loves you. If you are in Christ, God loves you. It is not changed if you have sin in your life. 
it hasn't been changed because you've done the wrong thing today. If you are in Christ, your continued sin grieves the heart of the Father of lights, but it doesn't make you any less loved. If you are in Christ, God loves you. Simple fact. I know that sometimes it's hard to believe it. You sometimes face difficulties in your life and you imagine that this means God doesn't love you. You face rebuke and problems and like the three-year-old screaming at his parents because they stopped him from running into the really cool moving traffic. You scream, God, you hate me. You must hate me. But no, no, he loves you. He desires your good. I wish I could actually say that more so that everybody would believe it, but I'll just have to leave it there. He does. There's a problem, though. He does love you. God does love his people. But the fact is that God's people can and do reject God in their actions. I mean, we are in a church, and most of us are dressed very nicely. We all decided to come to church this morning, so we're at least somewhat holy. But in our actions, do we always tell God that you know we're following him, that we're obeying him? Do we always show that we live in the love of Christ? I've probably already sinned enough today to damn the whole world, <laughs> to be honest with you. People do, people of God, do actually act against God. That's what we see in Hosea 2. And they do it in two different ways. First of all, they have false gods. Look at verse 7. It says that she shall pursue, quote, her lovers. She's pursuing lovers. And in case you don't get this, get the image for what this is, then verse 13 it says, I will punish her for the feast days of Baal, of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with rings with her ring and jewelry and then and went after her lovers and forgot me now the people of israel are really god's people but they can and they do run away from him they can and they do Betray him. Now, I have to be careful here too because, you know, Daniel uh, preached several weeks ago on Galatians and he's told us that uh, faith alone saves, but, is not a, but the faith that saves doesn't remain alone. He meant that if you actually have saving faith, you will change, you will become more holy, you will slowly seek more and more after God. But that doesn't mean that the church is full of righteous people. The church is full of people who are unrighteous, saved by the only righteous person, Jesus Christ. We can and we do. And before we talk about, you know, the problems of bales, because, you know, I walked around St. John's even before the service. I didn't see a lot of golden gilded calves anywhere. D did you? I mean, I, I didn't see any. But I did see... A lot of people who were, you know, going to the sports bar to watch sporting events and put that above God. 
I did go to the mall, and I, I'm great with shopping, but let's face it, the mall oftentimes gives you an alternative view of what you should be worshiping and going after. You should be about this thin, you should be able to wear those clothes and actually pull it off. You shouldn't have these weird gaps in your teeth because it doesn't look good. You should have all the newest technology. And sometimes we worship those things more than we worship God. So I don't know if you guys have things that you're worshiping. I know I do have, I do have false gods in my life, places where I gain my value instead of the true God of Israel. So let's not look down on the people of Israel for actually missing that. We do sometimes put things in place of God. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's idolatry. Any good thing. Even good things given to you by God. If you make them your God, you've got a false God. So you can't, people of God do sometimes follow after false gods. It's even more interesting when it comes to Hosea, in Hosea's time because look at what, the, what they used to do, verses 5 and verses 12. In, in 5 it says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water. Uh, don't all good gifts come from the Father of lights? I remember reading that somewhere. Yet she's say, he's say, the people of Israel are saying, No, my good gifts came from my lovers. The flax and that stuff comes from Baal. And, and, and just to be clear, golden calves can't give you stuff. Even more than that, many of the things that we trust in here in this world don't give us stuff. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got investments, but let's face it, if the banking system collapses tomorrow, my investments are gone. It's only God's good grace that lets me keep that. And yet, so often, we find it easy to misattribute the things that God has given us to someone else. We imagine that the good gifts that we've got in our husband or in our wife is because we've managed to change them adequately to meet our standards. Yeah, no. <laughs> Insofar as your husband is good and you, or your wife is good, God made them that way. If you have wealth or if you have friends or if you have anything, to be honest, any good gift comes from God and ultimately it's a gift from him. Be careful of, of, provide, of pretending that that's your own actions. And it, it, just to be clear, that can be, get a little f dicey for Christians because Christians have a really, really interesting way of pretending that we're giving God glory when we're actually giving ourselves glory. I... The reason that I'm actually in such a good position right now is because I'm a good godly man. I've done really, really good stuff, and so God is giving, pouring good blessings down on me. It sounds like I'm loving Jesus, doesn't it? It sounds like I care that Jesus, you know, is, is giving me the good gifts, and I'm giving him the credit. I'm giving him the praise and the glory for giving me the good gifts. When in fact, what I just said is, I did great stuff. So Jesus had to give me good stuff. The person I'm praising is me. <laughs> we do that. We do that. We can misapply the good gifts of God. And the people of Israel were doing that. So that's the second point. First point was God loves his people. The second point, 
was that God's people can and do reject God in their actions. We shouldn't, but we can and we do. We have to be careful because we can. And third, and this is probably the biggest part of why people don't like reading prophets, there are consequences to rejecting a loving God's love, even if things go well for a while. And you have consequences, not in spite of God's love for you, but because of God's love for you. But there are consequences to rejecting God's love, to turning against him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes it looks like our, our sin is working. It looks like our rejection of God has worked well for our lives. It's going to do well. Honestly, most people who are sinning right now don't think it's a bad situation. It'll often go well for a while. The problem is it doesn't go well forever. And God wants your joy forever. He doesn't want it just for the few days of this life. He wants you to have joy forever. So at some point, if God loves you, he will stop you. And he will show you the consequences of what you're doing. His forbearance doesn't mean that it's never going to happen. And I, I, say, I use the word consequences for a very specific reason. I mean consequences, not pure vengeance. God will have revenge for all of the injustice in the world in hell at the end of time. But for right now, his judgment is for correction. He's, it's consequences, not mere vengeance. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 9. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Friends, do you have problems in your life right now? Things that if you look at it accurately, probably the reasons that you're facing these problems is because you embraced sin earlier. Take heart. That means God loves you. He's convicting you. He's changing you. He's working on you so that eventually you'll have a joy that surpasses all understanding, a joy that's not based in the mere gifts of God, but in God himself. See, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? There are consequences to sin. They get brought out. That's exactly what we're seeing here. When it says that I will uncover her lewdness, it's not because he, he's really, really mean about things. He's pointing out, no, your Baals didn't actually give you the gifts. Your false gods are incapable of producing the good gifts that God is giving you. And I'm going to show you that. 
Try praying to your bales now. And it feels terrible. It really does. Because the thing that these people have been placing most of their hope in is a false god. But, and it feels terrible to have your false god torn down. But let's be frank. It's better your false god gets torn down now before you get destroyed by following a false god. It's love that God is giving you by showing you the consequences of the sin. And notice that the consequences here are actually parts of the sin. For example, the re- God punishes them by putting up a wall, a, a wall of thorns, he, he calls it, that will keep them from chasing their lovers. Now, I don't know if you've ever run into a wall. It's not a feeling I'd recommend, especially if there are thorns on the wall. It feels really, really bad. Even worse if you're chasing after something you really, really want and you hit this big wall. Yet, it's good for you that it happens this way. Because God is keeping you from the thing that will destroy you. And it's not just some arbitrary punishment that God's giving you. It's a punishment that's for a specific purpose. And God then also, the other punishments we see here, God makes the situation explicit. The gifts are from him and they are rejecting him. So here's a logical syllogism for you. All good gifts from the, come from God, the Father of lights. Okay? Premise one. Premise two. We reject God. What's the conclusion? Think about it. If you reject the giver of all good gifts, what good gifts should you get? None. So when God takes away the good gifts that the people of Israel are getting, he's not being cruel to them. He's just simply showing them what it means to reject him. That's what it means. But there is a third consequence, and this is from verses 14 and 15, and this is the important one. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her, vi- the, her, her vineyards and make her the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in days of her youth, as at the time she came out of the land of Egypt. Punishment is a consequence, but there is also the consequence of mercy, of grace. You see, If we had never sinned, we would never need to know the mercy of God. If we had never been lost in our our own rebellion, we would have never seen the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And friends, he is good. There is a blessing that God is giving us through the midst of our punishment. There is a consequence to our sin, that is the mercy that God gives us, that God offers freely. And here, just remember what it is the gospel actually says. God, knowing our frailty and seeing our lostness and sin and even our willful rebellion to him while we were yet 
enemies. We were sinners. We were turning away from him. We were spitting in his face. Yet he, he loved us and he desired to save us. And so he sent his son, a perfect God, to live life among us. A righteous life that we, none of us, have lived. And then he died the death we righteously deserved for our open rebellion and hatred of God. And he rose again to call us to a future with him. Our only task in this is to put our faith and trust in him. And our, our sinful lives end. It's no longer I that live, it's Christ who lives in me. Replaced by the sinless love of not me, but Jesus Christ. And now, finding ourselves in Christ, we are free to live lives to God. So, how do we apply this? Because I'm over time. There are four applications I want us to talk about. First and foremost, realize your value to God. It's not based in you. It's based in him. If you are in Christ, you are valuable to God. Period. End of sentence. Now, I have to say that if you are in Christ, because that's kind of important because we need to actually accept the mercy of God through Jesus Christ or we're not actually in Christ. So those of, those of us who are believers... Rejoice that you are, in fact, loved of God. And if you're not a believer right now, and you're not actually looking at me with daggers trying to kill me because, you know, I'm telling you that, you know, you're not uh, beloved of God unless you're in Christ, well, turn to Christ. It's available to you right now. If you don't know Jesus Christ right now, just put your faith in him right now. Don't even wait until the end of the, sentence, the sermon. You don't even have to keep listening to me. Just talk to God. Tell him that you're sorry and you want to accept Jesus into your life. Uh, I, I'm okay with not being listened to while you do that. Because Jesus is far more valuable than this. Far more valuable than the things I say. And if you are in Christ, your value is beloved. Regardless of the situations you find yourself in. Regardless of the consequences of the sin that up to this point in your life. You are beloved and Christ will come into your life and he is aiming to change you, to make you, to transform you from one degree of glory to another until at the end we get to enjoy company with him and each other forever. Know your value in Christ. Second of all, and this is kind of difficult, recognize your sin. Yeah, a bit of a downer after telling you about how you are beloved of God, but recognize your sin. There's actually a blessing to this. If you look at your face and it, you look at it in the face and embrace the fact that you've done it and that there's no way around it because you can't repent of something you ignore or blame on other people. So as long as your sin is, as long as you pretend your sin is by somebody else, or because you imagine that your sin isn't there, you can't repent of it. 
And friends, God gives us the grace of his Holy Spirit to help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Look into your life and look at your sin fully, knowing that you are beloved in God and that God gives you the power to fight your sin, but still look at your sin. Receive, third, receive the grace offered in Christ. I say this to both believers and unbelievers. Christians have this weird idea sometimes that you know you just need to accept Jesus' grace once. You know, it, it happened back in 1992 when I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and that's that's when I needed to accept the faith, the the grace of Christ. No, we need to accept it every day because we have new challenges every day. And that's what we need to do. When you're looking at your sin, accept the grace of God to fight your sin, to go against your sin, knowing that God loves you and desires your good and desires to lead you through this to greater joy. Receive the grace offered in Christ. Finally, live Godward. Now that your life, you've looked at your sin. Now that you've seen the things that you've done, now that you've, tur- you've seen the problems that come, turn to God. Live the life he calls you to. Not that you'll ever be perfect in it. Not that you give, that gives you a right to, to be over and against other people. But let's face it. The loving consequences of your obedience to God is greater blessing. That's what the consequence is to obedience to God. The consequence, now not necessarily blessings that we like, <laughs> but ultimate blessings. Eternal blessings, blessings that tr- transcend any blessing we could possibly know here. So live a life towards God. Cease to live a life with consequences that are dark. If your three year old son runs into traffic, you know it would probably be better for him if he just didn't run into the traffic. He wouldn't have to get picked up. He wouldn't have to get scolded. Similarly, us, if we don't want to actually be scolded by God, if we don't want to face his loving rebuke because of our idolatries, stop being idolatrous. And we can, because God has given us the gift of his son. He's given us the gift of his spirit. It's available to us. Let's pray. Lord God, may the people in front of me have heard a much, much, much better sermon than I feel I've preached. I pray that you would have convicted people not just of sin, but of your love for them. That a love that's been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, that since we have Christ, we have all things. And that the consequences of our life no longer have to be lost in the consequences of sin and death, but the consequences can be based in your love for us. Thank you that you do love us. In Jesus' name, amen.